Attention. This podcast contains subject matter that may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From out of the darkness, you hear voices that send shivers down your spine. That feeling of dread is undeniable when you notice the monster under the bed is trembling. The aliens are scrambling to get back to the mothership, and the vampires are refusing to rise. Your reptilian overlords are pleased to force on you two humans they swear are not their captives. Your hosts, Michael and Wendy. This is Eerie and Absurd. Welcome back to Eerie and Absurd. I'm Mike. I'm Wendy. On today's Missing Monday, we're going to be talking about Brandy Jan Thomerson, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Rita. Yeah. Yeah, she's local. She's from Sumner. Her disappearance was from Portland, actually. For today's sources, we use Tennessee Missing and Unsolved Facebook page. We use Middle Tennessee Mysteries article by Michelle Willard. Uh, there is a news source from WKRN by Kim Wynn, and it was called Woman's Cold Case Haunt Sumner County Investigators 15 Years Later. And then we're going to also link the Charlie Project, Name Us, and the Sumner County Sheriff's Office Open Case Files page. I always thought that NamUs was N-A-M-E-U-S, but it's actually N-A-M-U-S dot com. Dot gov. Dot gov, yeah. Born on January 17th of 1961, Brandy Jan Thomerson, also known as Rita, and so we're going to refer to her as Rita going forward, is a mother of four and was married to William Thomerson when she disappeared on February 14th of 2003. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of information about Rita before her disappearance, but what we could find was that her and her husband owned a now-closed local restaurant called the Iron Skillet in Portland, Tennessee. At the time of her disappearance, Rita was 42 years old, and she's described as a white female. She has brown hair. She's got blue eyes. She's around 5'4", 5'5". She's got pierced ears. There is a mole that is located behind her left ear, and she wears a partial plate due to missing her two upper front teeth, and she wears clear contact lenses. As for what she was wearing at the time of her disappearance, we don't have that information or a description for clothing, but she may have been wearing a gold-colored watch and a gold ring set with a diamond solitaire. There are two accounts of Rita's last known whereabouts, and so we're going to provide both accounts. But again, there's not a lot of information to provide on either last sighting, but hopefully, just maybe, one of these accounts is correct and someone can provide additional details or information. One piece of information that is consistent is that Rita's husband, William, went to pick her up on the night of February the 14th of 2003. He found the doors locked no lights on, and no Rita to be found anywhere. So William did not report Rita missing straight away. Unfortunately, Rita had disappeared before in the past. It wasn't usually for a very long time. It might just be a few days. But Rita did suffer from bipolar disorder, and she had a history of drug and alcohol abuse. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that Rita's disappearance had anything to do with her mental health or her past history of substance abuse, but I also don't have any information on how often she may have disappeared or if she may have disappeared fairly recently before her last sighting. We don't have any information on any potential triggers that could have caused her to maybe get upset or could have possibly caused her to use alcohol or drugs. The first account on Rita's last known whereabouts was that she was seen at the residence that she shared with her husband, which was located on Keene Road in Portland, Tennessee. And that's it. Okay. I cannot locate any information on who saw her, what time she may have been seen, if she was going into the home, out of the home, if the person that saw her spoke with her, or even just visited with her for just a bit, you know. 
The second account of Rita's last known whereabouts was a friend of Rita's reported to police that they saw Rita at the Iron Skillet, which was located on 3202 Highway 76 in Portland, getting into a champagne-colored vehicle with tinted windows. The driver of the vehicle was unknown by the witness, and it doesn't appear that Sumner County has released that individual's name or description. The detectives that were working on Rita's case were able to locate and question the owner of the vehicle. The owner of the vehicle told police that Rita was taken to a motel located in the Dickerson Pike area of Nashville, Tennessee. So I could not locate the name of the motel or even a time frame of when this may have occurred, but police did search the motel, but were unable to locate Rita. Rita's husband has been interviewed by police and even took a polygraph. And from what I've gathered, he is not seen as a suspect in her disappearance or to have played a role in her disappearance. But unfortunately, this is literally all we have on Rita's disappearance. Yes, that's that's a tough one. I mean, there's nothing. There's no information. So what do you follow? Either a lot of stuff is being kept close to the belt and like they're not wanting to release a lot of stuff or that's just it. There's this is what we got. Somebody knows. Absolutely. So if you're not familiar with the Nashville metro area in like Davidson County and those surrounding counties, Dickerson Road or Dickerson Pike has an unsavory reputation, Yeah, which includes, you know, drug use, uh, sex workers, and there's lots of police activity sometimes all throughout that area. If you have any information on Brandy Jan Thomerson's disappearance, please call the Sumner County Sheriff's Office at 615-452-2616. And so that's it. That's all we have on her. But we do have an update. We do. We have an update on one of our previous episodes, uh, the one concerning uh, Diane Vaughn. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to take away from Rita's story, but one of the main reasons I wanted to provide the update with Rita's story is there is a petition that is out for people to sign that is requesting to have both Rita's case and Diane's case re-looked at. And so I'm going to link that. So I wanted to be, I wanted to link that together. So the family of Diane Vaughn reached out to us. Uh-huh. They reached out to the podcast. I had the opportunity to speak with Diane's mother, her sister, her stepfather, and they wanted to clear up a few things and provide a little more insight on some of the questions that we had and some facts that were just not being printed in the media. Some facts, you know, her mom said they were just wrong. And so she just wanted to be able to provide clarification. Yeah, we want to get it right. That way, maybe someone can help. Absolutely. So I'm going to highly suggest you listen to the first episode about Diane, because I'm not going to go into great detail on things that we may have already discussed. I'm going to provide the information that the family gave without trying to tell the whole story again, but it is going to seem like I'm telling it again. But this is just kind of filling in those gaps that, that we were like, what is happening here? Yeah. And even things that we didn't know. The day that Diane di- disappeared, she dropped the baby off with her mother, Mary Jo, and told her that she'd call her later that night. Uh, Mary Jo didn't talk to Diane anymore that day or night, but later in the day, Diane's husband, Bruce, called and asked if he could go ahead and pick up the baby. Now, it was totally okay for him to do that, so he, you know, Bruce came by and he picked her up. Diane was working that day, and she wasn't scheduled to get off work until around 8 or 9 o'clock that night. So, in our earlier episode, we had already determined that Diane did stop at Bruce's house that night after she got off work. He gave a statement to police that she left around nine. And we also found out that her cousin Dottie stated that Diane was supposed to have come by her house after leaving Bruce's, but she never showed. Now, Dottie and Diane were not very close until Diane and Bruce split up. Only then did they start like kind of building a closer relationship Mm -hmm. after the split. On Friday morning, Bruce brings the baby over to Diane's mom's house. And this is not unusual since, you know, Mary Jo rarely watched her all the time. Nothing unusual. Thinking that Diane would be by to pick up the baby, she gets her ready and they kind of, they wait for, they wait for Diane. 
but she never shows up. Mary Jo is not overly concerned about this. She just figures that Diane is with Doug Griffin, who is the married co-workers that she had been seeing. So that same Friday night, Bruce is scheduled to race locally. And so Mary Jo, Richard, and Bruce, they all go and they attend this race. Just for reference, though, even though Diane hasn't made contact with anyone, Mary Jo and other members of the family are not worried or suspicious. Nothing's happened to raise any red flags. They just haven't spoke to her. It's not, it's been maybe, I don't even think it's been 24 hours yet, but there's nothing to get them worried. Nothing's happened to make them suspect any nefarious activities. Mm -hmm. However... It's during this time while everyone is out at the races that Diane's cousin Dottie contacts Diane's brother Michael and kind of convinces him to come with her to file a missing persons report. According to the family, she didn't contact Mary Jo or anyone else with her reasoning like on why she felt it was necessary to even file a report. And they didn't even know that she was going to file it until after it had been filed. They had no idea that it was even happening. Once they find out that this report has been filed, they're obviously confused and upset on like, why the rush? What's happened? What's happened that they don't know about? So Saturday morning, Mary Jo, Richard, who is Diane's stepfather, and Bruce, they go out looking for Diane. They spend half a day looking for her or just her vehicle. They even go to the O'Charlies in Goodlettsville, where her vehicle had been found along with her potential last sighting. Diane's car was not there when they did their initial sweep. Not there. Sometime during the early afternoon, Billy Gann, who is Dottie's husband, finds Diane's car at the O'Charlies. Now, Gann is mentioned as being a private investigator in numerous articles. According to the family, this is not true to their knowledge, but he did own a towing company located off of or near Dickerson Pike. One of the things we questioned in our previous episode was, was there anything in the car? Because nothing's ever mentioned in any mm-hmm. of the reports or anything that we've seen. We keep, nothing. According to Mary Jo, there were some clothes a jacket, shoes, and a bathing suit that belonged to Diane. Diane's purse, her wallet, even an ID, they were not in the car. So more than likely, she had those items with her. However, I would like to note that without waiting on police, they stated that Gann opened the car, searched the car himself, and stated that there were no fingerprints or evidence in the car. So this is before police even got to touch it. He was in there messing with it. Now, before moving into her own place in Hendersonville, Diane had temporarily moved in with one of her friends named Susie after she and Bruce split up. Three days after Diane's disappearance, Susie apparently received a disturbing phone call from a person stating, that bitch is gone. She deserved what she got. Susie had no idea who this person was and didn't recognize the the voice on the other end. She'd never heard him before. To make things even more weird, or weirder, Mary Jo also received a phone call from a man stating, I know what happened to your daughter. And when she asked what, he hung up. Neither got any additional phone calls after that, but this was really early in the investigation. And it had already been in the news that she was missing? It was three days after her disappearance. So I'm not sure. I don't know that it had hit a newspaper yet. Yeah. So it's not just crazy people calling in. Right. Because that was someone probably knows. Yeah. Because sometimes, unfortunately, that happens. Right. Now, during this time, Diane's case is in the Metro Davidson County jurisdiction area. Mary Jo and Richard are not okay with how Metro and the detectives are investigating Diane's disappearance. They didn't feel that the detectives were listening to any of the information being provided to them due to the constant involvement or insertion of Billy and Dottie. It is also due to this constant involvement that they believe the police kind of got tunnel vision and they only concentrated on Bruce. Mary Jo ends up having the case transferred to Sumner County where she felt the detective involved took them a little more serious and would keep her and the family updated you know, with any relevant topics, news, or events. Mm-hmm. Now, the family was able and wanted to clear up a few additional things. So 
Diane was not depressed. They want to make sure that everybody knows that because that is in every single article. Diane was not depressed. She was perfectly happy and not upset about anything. When Diane moved out, the family helped her move her belongings. Like, so when her and Bruce split and she was moving to get her own place, they all helped her move, including Bruce. Yeah, so it was mutual. They were fine. Yeah, Bruce fully cooperated in the beginning. He allowed his property to be searched multiple times and at least once when he was not on the property. He got a lawyer after being urged by Mary Jo, Richard, and other members of Diane's family. And apparently, Billy Gann and a detective from Metro were found by Bruce digging up dirt from his yard. They they didn't have permission to be there and definitely did not have permission to be digging or potentially taking dirt from his property. That's odd. Mm-hmm. The wife of Doug Griffin did show up at Diane's work and threatened Diane. I don't have specifics on what the threats were, and they could have just been kind of like empty threats by a scorned, pissed-off wife. Sure. Um, the family did find out that Doug took a polygraph and he passed, which I think we mentioned that in the previous episode. Um, he did end up, he moved out of Nashville, and eventually he moved out of state. And we don't have the wife's name. The police went to Diane's younger sister, and requested that she take a polygraph. The reasoning being she was um, she was in beauty school and could have helped Diane change her appearance. She refused, and I, really, I don't blame her. You're going to change more in hair? <laughs> Come on. Yeah. The family feels the case was messed up from the beginning, and with the constant insertion of Billy and Dottie, not all avenues or leads were fully investigated, and I, I'm going to agree with that situation. I don't, I feel like there was tunnel vision against Bruce. Even though it was rough for a little while for the family, the family no longer holds like any anger towards Dottie because there was a little friction there for a while because they were not seeing eye to eye. And, you know, her and her husband were consistently inserting themselves into this investigation. Basically, they boiled it down to she's family and they don't want to live in anger or even hold any hang- anger in their hearts. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And they can't. That's not good for your soul anyways. Um, as for Gann and the Metro detectives, there is no love loss there. And they had no endearing words of encouragement or goodbyes. <laughs> they, not, they are not fans and I don't blame them. They truly don't believe that Bruce had anything to do with Diane's disappearance. And after searching caves, fields, following leads from psychics and spending their entire savings to find Diane, Mary Jo still has Diane's picture hanging in her yard to remind everyone that passes by that she is still missing. Again, if you have any information on the disappearance of Elizabeth Diane Vaughn or Brandy Rita Thomerson, please contact the Sumner County Sheriff's Office at 615-452-2616. And we are also going to provide a link to, uh, to a petition that is requesting to have both cases looked at again. Please sign it, share it. It doesn't cost money, just an extremely small portion of your time. Like, it, like come on. It could be your signature that makes the difference. Yeah. We've signed it. And everybody else, I mean, it takes no time. Think about in the sense if you have a family member that's missing. You just have to sign it. And we're giving you the link. Yeah. We just can't do it for you. Yeah, piece of cake. And maybe they could, you know, if, if enough people spread it and sign it, then maybe they could get over a thousand. That would be nice. All right. So that's it. Thank you for joining us. Remember to like us. Love us. Share us, rate us, review us. Apple iTunes, or I mean Apple Podcasts. Also, we have a Facebook, we have an Instagram, we have a Twitter. Like and share all that stuff. Remember, if you have a friend with a birthday coming up, they would love us. We're free. And we'll give them a shout out. Tell us. Yeah. Until next time. Sign the fucking petition. Wow. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have been so forceful. I'm sorry. Please sign the petition. Bye. Bye. 
Until next time, fellow Absurdians, remember, everything you've heard is true, monsters are real, and the strangers in black are not a figment of your imagination. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast streaming service. Do you have a story you want to share? Contact us at eerieandabsurd at gmail.com or visit our website at eerieandabsurd.com to submit a suggestion. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, both at eerie underscore absurd.